Happy holidays and welcome back everyone to the Anagram Journey Podcast. Today is part one of two of a conversation with Suzanne and Anagram 7 Luke Norsworthy. You might know Luke from his podcast, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, or from the very first episode of the Anagram Journey back in October of 2017. Luke has written a new book titled God Over Good, and in this podcast and the following one, uh, he and Suzanne talk about faith, of course, life as an Anagram 7, and relationships. Uh, and then a great part of the second episode is when they discuss spiritual practices, and uh, the great Reverend Joseph Stabile jumps on. Uh, these two podcasts were recorded in front of a small audience, so there's going to be some Q&A. If you've learned your Anagram number and you're wondering, what do I do now, and you live in the Waco area or Dallas area, Asheville, North Carolina, or Hot Springs, Arkansas. Starting in January, are several Path Between Us study guide small groups. For information, please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And then also, please keep sending in your questions at theanagramjourney.org backslash interact. We hope you all enjoyed today's show. Hey, Luke. Hello. You're just one of my favorite people. I kind of made a promise to myself that I wouldn't say that to every guest on the podcast. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say, oh, you're my best friend from forever, or you're one of my favorite people, but you are one of my favorite people, and you're probably the reason I have a podcast. I, I feel like everything is going to go downhill from here. No, no, no. It's going no. up. Okay. It's all going up. So I got this phone call from you one day. Just one day I got a phone call mm-hmm. from a really nice-sounding young man who said, Hey, how about being on my podcast? And I wrote on my paper at my desk, what's a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Uh, okay. (laughs) And you said, okay, I'll be to your house, and here's what we'll do. And you don't need to really prepare. And uh, you showed up at my house, and I thought, I think I could talk to this guy about anything. And I think that's why you're such a... an exceptional host, because people just kind of get it that they could probably talk to you about anything. So welcome. Thank, thank you. I feel like we should do this for a long time, because this is going really good for me so far. Yeah, well, what we're going to do is the next time on, I'm on yours, I'm just modeling for you how you might want to introduce me. <laughs> Deal. I mean, I can, I can wax poetic about you, too. Uh, I am a huge fan of yours, and it is an honor to be with you, and thank you for having me on your podcast. And... It's weird for, for me to be somewhat interviewed by you because I've learned so much from you that I'll probably have more questions for you. And so I'll do my best to not like turn this into me interviewing you. Yeah, we're not going to do that. I'm in charge tonight. Okay. All right, boss. <laughs> so um, what do you think it is about sevenness that makes life so lovely for you? Well, uh, so my day job is I'm a pastor And one of the things I've learned about the Bible is often God is represented with the number seven. It's one of the divine numbers. So I I don't know if there's a correlation there or not. I I feel like that's... Slight, perhaps. Slight? Come. I think every number represents part of the image of God. Right. And I think each of us bring part of the divine into reality in our humanity. Uh, The sevens? What is... What was the question again? Why don't you just make up a question about your sevenness that you want to answer and then answer? Hang on, I want to point out, did anyone listen to this week's podcast? 
with uh, Leanne, who's a seven. And she yeah. said, she started talking for about five minutes. She goes, hang on, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And she did it. Yes. But, but you asked her about feelings, and I think that's what got the stump there. I think I would, well, if you talk about feelings, I'll have a much more terse answer. Nothing. I don't do it. Um, Not remembering the question is fairly terse. Okay. So here's Deal. the question. I, here's the question. What I like about being a seven is that I have zero offense to what just happened. That's right. And it doesn't bother me at all. So, so here's the deal. What about being a seven makes the world and life so lovely for you? Uh, that, like, that literally there is, um, there is almost an endless amount of possibilities in, in every moment. Every moment is imbued with potential for something that it might seem banal and it might seem boring and it might seem like we're just in the, the trite mundane moments of life but if you're seven like you know that it's not just this and i think that is part of what healthy spirituality is not just i think every number reflects healthy spirituality in its own way and i think what sevens can teach us is that there is something transcendent even in the most boring of moments and my favorite quote uh, probably for the last couple of years is one by uh, a lady named Joan Chittister. Anyone read Joan Chittister? No? Anyone? Yes? Okay, she has this amazing quote where she says, In this moment is the essence of everything glorious I have been given in life, and it is enough. In this moment is the essence of everything glorious I've been given in life, and it's enough. Like every moment has something glorious inside of it. And I think us sevens remind, remind the world, like, don't, don't miss this isn't just, we're not just going through the motions. We're not just here to like get a paycheck and to get food and to go home and take a nap. And like, there's something more than that. And I think sevens kind of help remind the world of that. So, you know, she's an eight on the Enneagram, self identified. Okay. And um, she's also a Benedictine nun for any of you who don't know her work. So she has uh, had a very different life. Mm-hmm. And she happens to be an eight Benedictine nun who has taken on Rome pretty much all by herself and uh, standing for um, women in ministry and ordination of women and things like that in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that I think Benedictine spirituality gives us is enough balance in life based on the disciplines that they require of work and play and rest and Mm -hmm. study or worship to um, be able to make that statement from an authentic place. Hmm. And I don't think it came as easy for her as it does for a seven Hmm. because she's an eight, right? So um, what's the other side of all of that joy and uh, loveliness for a seven? I think sevens can be mis, uh, misunderstood to think that they don't have any any depth underneath the surface, that it's all like just a, the sizzle and there's no steak, that there's jokes and there's laughter and there's fun, but there's no substance underneath it. And I think part of the reason there's a misunderstanding is because sometimes us sevens don't do a really good job about stepping into that about stepping into the darkness, of stepping into the, the mystery, of stepping into the things that, that create fear in us. Because, you know, we know sevens are driven by that. But I, I don't think that, that sevens don't have the ability to occupy that space. 
I just think they have such a propensity to avoid it. They have the ability to step around it. And if you had, it's like it, if you ever go to, to Disney, which I hope you don't ever have to do that because it's the worst, um, just <laughs> concrete and sweat and crowds. Like that's just, two out of those three, two, three things would be enough to drive me crazy. All three of them, no, just give me tequila. That's, if, but I'm a preacher, so I refuse it, of course. Um, <laughs> but if you're at Disney and they give you a fast pass, where you don't have to stand in line, you would be an idiot to not use it. And as a seven, you're just given a fast pass. You're like, okay, I can, I can kind of shortcut this and get around it. And why wouldn't you use it? And the reason you wouldn't is because there's something about being in a line that teaches you something. There's something about being human that means you stand in lines. But a sevens have the fast pass to get around that. That's such a good answer. Um, I'm always enamored by the story of how you and why you started your podcast. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if that's not a seven thing too. Because? Well, if you don't know, Luke decided to do a podcast, because his own, because he uh, wanted to visit with all these people that he'd read and heard about, and he didn't quite know how else to get in touch with them and get to know them unless he just started a podcast and called people that nobody else would dream of calling on the phone and saying, how about being on my podcast? And people say yes. Yeah. They just say, okay. Mm -hmm. So list one or two that was a total surprise for you and how they surprised you. Uh, well, obviously my biggest guest I've ever had is Suzanne Stabile. Oh, please. And <laughs> well played. That was the, the, the biggest gift for me. That was very well done, by Thank the way. You. Thank you. I practiced that one. Yeah. The the biggest like surprise of like who mm -hmm. I think every person has been like some people. I've done a couple hundred of these, and for the most part, everyone has been like this neat interaction. And uh, so I've had like uh, any, any fans of The Office in here. So like Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office. So he's a great guy. I did one with him out in Malibu, and uh, real lovely guy. Uh, his uh, Tesla is real messy. I encourage him to clean it up. We had to drive to another side of campus. But a uh, real down-to-earth guy. So it was, I've had a couple comedians on there. Uh, Pete Holmes, anyone fans of HBO crashing his show on there? No, you guys are good Christian people. That's why I don't know that show. <laughs> um, not endorsing that. He, but um, th there's something about like performers that often like their offstage personality is not what you see on stage. And so uh, it took me a while to learn that. Um, I think it's a surprise that sometimes people who are uh, kind of like fields that have been harvested a lot, like people who've been in, in front of cameras a lot and had microphones in their face, that uh, they develop kind of like a, um, a callus. And mm -hmm. because they have these kind of like these answers that have been rehearsed because the same questions get asked over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a surprise of, oh, like your humanity gets stripped away every time you get asked the same question over and over again. And people say, oh... Um, I, I'm not. I, I love Hillsong. I'm a big fan. But like, poor Joel Houston is asked, "You're a Christian. You have bright lights in front of, like, at your shows. And when you do worship, is that because you don't trust that God's spirit's enough?" And so he has this answer about, you know, we we want to be bright lights to show the light of the gospel. So, because he's been asked that same question so many times, and it's almost like his humanity is like this this paint that's been like sanded off, and all of a sudden you get just like this varnt, like this this shiny thing that's not human anymore. Um, uh, so it surprised me like how our humanity is this thing that I think we have to fight to keep 
because often life kind of pulls that stuff away from us. Um, Surprises like some of the people I've gotten to know have turned out to be some really amazing people. Uh, do you know Becca Stevens? Thistle Farms, Nashville. Yeah. Um, anyone ever heard of Thistle Farms? Uh, anyone ever heard of the uh, Rascal? F- you have? Yeah, they're they're. Do you have the chapstick right now? Really? I'm I'm a body bomb fan. Like that's my favorite stuff from there. Um, I feel like I'm losing control now. Well, I've got a quick. Just in hearing you talk about someone else's repetition, I could see on your face how beat down you are of someone else being asked the same question over and over and over. I feel like that's a seventh thing. Yeah. Do you have that in your life? I have elders meetings. Uh, <laughs> kidding, kidding, I love those. Um, I mean, a lot of what I do is Repetition, like I, I preach every Sunday, from you know, 40 sometimes a year. And w- one of the great things is uh, Kevin and Laura over there in the corner, they were a part of our church plant. We did church together, small church, under 100 people up in Denton for years. And so we transitioned from that to uh, a larger church. And so I preach uh, three times every Sunday and thousand plus people are there. And so I have the same kind of, hey, how you doing? How was your week? Oh, you said this in your sermon. Uh, what do you think about the Dallas Cowboys? Well, well, the weather. Oh, it's raining a lot. Like I have the same, like those kind of conversations way too many times every Sunday. And I'm very grateful to, to connect and, and that's fun to do. But sometimes I, w- I would rather have a more substantive conversation that, that carries a little bit more like honesty. And that, that isn't always conducive in kind of like the Sunday morning handshake sort of interaction. Okay, I've got two things I want us to explore. And the first is, I don't know any of the people except Becca Stevens and some of your deacon board or bench. I don't know any of the other people that you talked about. Fair enough. So... (laughs) You never heard the song Oceans? No. I don't know if you're going to get into heaven. (laughs) Like, I hope you are, but... Do you know the Floyd Ada High School school song? I know who the, the captain of the basketball team was for Florida. I was more than the captain. All right. <laughs> now. I have to say, I thought, I don't know if you were going to get to heaven, was a song that they sang when you said that. When you were like, <laughs> have you heard them? I don't know if you're going to get to heaven. You guys are not. You haven't heard that one? You guys aren't evangelical at all. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad, frankly, to know that it's that I'm not evangelical. Because I thought I was missing some great thing that was happening in a broader world and I didn't know anything about it. So uh, the, the thing that I want us to explore perhaps together, mm-hmm. unless you just have an answer, is it, is it interesting to you that of all those examples that you gave of people you had interviewed and uh, comedians and who you talked to and how they were and all that, I knew none of them. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we're friends? Um, serious question. What, what do you think bridges all of that for us? Because if we don't figure out this intergenerational thing pretty quick, I think my generation is going to keep an entire generation from being heard. I, I want to be your friend because not just that you like exude like kindness and love, uh, because I respect you because I, I feel like I'm a better person because I know you. I 
you've given me tools to try to be a little better husband than I was before. Uh, See, the thing that I'm so aware of is that you're a seven and I'm a two and we're very different. And you're much younger than I am. I'm old enough to be your mother. And something happens that transcends all of that. So I'll tell you what my answer is. I think it's because we're both committed to being authentic. And that's my segue to talk for the first time, and I'm going to keep talking about it on and off, your book. Okay. So, uh, God Over Good by Luke Norsworthy. If you don't have it, get it. Um, is a surprise. What do you mean? Well, um, I'm not surprised by your authenticity. I am surprised by... The lack of humor. Really? There's plenty of humor in it. Mm -hmm. But what you didn't do, that most sevens do, is turn something that was really deep into something a little less deep with humor. And that's what sevens do, and that's how they make their way in the world. And that's what you do often, but you didn't do it here. You want to some funny? Is that... Yeah. <laughs> Poor choice of I, words. I don't know what to say. I, Do you, <laughs> this is how good I am. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't okay, want to jump in with another joke, also. <laughs> uh, no, but that, I didn't want you to be like. So it, it wasn't funny. First of all, that would be more hurtful. Uh, I said there was no, plenty no, of humor. I needed that. Thank you. But the first, so I had this person who's helping me work in the book, early stages, and meet him in Nashville and I'm speaking at an event in Nashville and I give them 20,000 words of a book, which is like a third of a book or more than that. And she says, there's a book in here, but none of these words are good. You need to start over. And I was like, ouch. And she says to me, you're not funny when you write. I just heard you talk and you're funny, but none of that is in there. And so what I'm saying, the ironic thing is that even like the first level of what this was trying to be had even less than what is in right now. Mm-hmm. And I think good art has to cost you something. Mm-hmm. And I can I can tell jokes, and for the most part, they don't cost me a whole lot. That's interesting. The jokes I tell cost me a lot, and they cost my husband, Pastor, a lot more. <laughs> well, I have some jokes that I've told that cost cost some. When uh, we're old, let's just do a jokes we were never allowed to tell podcast. I yeah, I have so. <laughs> That was not a commitment. Is that because you think I'm going to get old before you? No, I don't think you're ever going <laughs> to age. Um, I'm thinking that because I have, so I, I've done a little bit of stand-up comedy, and I have a set that like I can keep my job with. <laughs> but I have another one. That's the one I think we should do in 15 years. It's, it's pretty dark. Um, but anyway, carry on. Well, I think uh, sevens cover feelings, authenticity, fear, insecurity, with humor. Mm-hmm. And uh, other numbers cover with something else. Like I-, I cover with being helpful, with schmoozing. I cover with being helpful, which is just... Not totally honest. <laughs> I, I cover with schmoozing and being helpful. Uh-huh. And I, I found in the two books that I've written that it's difficult to cover 
if you're going to spend all that time writing a book, then you you just, at one point, you just don't want to cover anymore. You just want to get your story told and move on. And I think the value of authentic stories is significant in a time where we're surrounded with inauthenticity mm-hmm. and sound bites. And I also am very taken with the fact that in the book you led with your weakness. Mm-hmm. Aggressive numbers don't often lead with weakness. I lead a lot with weakness, partly because I'm old, mm-hmm. er, and partly because leading with weakness invites people into my story or your story, and they bring their stories with them. Mm-hmm. And I think to um, write a book about doubt for um, Annie Ram Seven, who is always full of answers and possibilities and all all good things, is courageous. Mm. And so while we tease each other a lot and we banter well I want to talk about a few passages in a serious spot and then we'll take a little break and thank you banter again and I I think I know I think I have this worked out so I can pace it so that you can stand to stay for the whole thing okay it's amazing that I have you have to pace my own writing for me yeah it is but it's a fact (laughs) an amazing fact but a fact nonetheless all right here's here's my first point that I want us to talk about Maybe salvation isn't about trying to force God to match my expectations for what God should be. True. This is not true-false. Okay. That's a topic sentence. You've got to fill it in. I want a paragraph. Okay. Um, can I hear it again? Yes. <laughs> Don't you hate that thing after you write a book where people say, oh, man, I loved it in your book where you said that, and you mm. think, I said that. Yeah. Like, you know, then you think, that, wow, that's, that's pretty that's good. good. That's that. good. Yeah. Could you repeat that? Yeah. It's in print here. You're good. Come. <clears throat> Maybe salvation isn't about trying to force God to match my expectations for what God should be. Yeah. Well, I, I think every one of us uh, accumulates expectations for what we think God is supposed to be, for what the Bible is supposed to be, what church is supposed to be, how the world is supposed to work. And often those uh, expectations accumulate like stains on a white couch. Like you don't know where they appeared or how they got there, but they're, they're there. And as our friends in the 12-step community will tell us, expectations are premeditated resentments because our expectations rarely become something that works out to fruition. And salvation for me, what I needed to be saved from was this cancerous view of what I think God and life and the world is supposed to be, in the Bible for that matter. And, you know, it's, it's difficult because not only was it my, my paycheck as a pastor, but it was what gave me meaning and direction in life, which is what I think faith is supposed to do. It's supposed to be like this, this grounding narrative that, that gives you words to, to put with everything. And when I was, like, my faith story started uh, like a good evangelical, like I started reading my Bible, what a, we call a quiet time. I don't know, what, do you, what do you people call that? Uh, sorry. You know, we're Christian. Like. Okay. <laughs> I just didn't know if you had a cooler word for it, because you guys have cooler word for, for stuff. Uh, well, Joe and I call it a spiritual practice. See, the, again, wake up, quiet time, right? It's like Lord's Supper, Eucharist, right? Like, I'm just saying. Yeah. 
Like we've co- got it all going on up there, but you, you know, Joe's also one more step away. That yeah. former priest thing. Yeah. When you're celibate, evidently you can think up all kinds of pretty words. You have more free time. Yeah, a lot of free time. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, gonna be funner than anything I say. That's great. Um, so I started and I read the Bible and I started reading this and it it literally changed who I was. It 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 like I literally was a different person. But as I grew and I got older, I started to realize that what I was doing was I was trying to find something that made sense of a world that you can't always make sense of. And it was like I was a guy sitting on the beach um, and I was afraid of the water. And so like Tom Hanks in Castaway, remember that movie? He's stuck there. He's got Wilson, the volleyball he's talking to, and he's uh, disheveled looking, but he's got to make sense of the world. And so that was kind of like me. Like, and I'm building like this structure to keep myself away from the water. And every time I had a question that didn't make sense, well, I was going to memorize another Bible verse. I was going to read another book. I was listening to another sermon. And I would build a structure to keep the water out because I, I would, just knew in my heart that the water would, was pulling me to destruction. But the problem is no matter how much sand you put up on the wall, like you can't keep the water out. And no matter how many books you read and how many, uh, besides these, um, how many Bible verses you memorize and how many sermons you listen to, you're always going to have this, this unknowing, this, this, this thing that you can't capture. And for me, salvation was realizing that what I needed to be saved from was actually this, this structure that I had constructed because the water that I was so afraid of was not trying to destroy me, but it was living water that was trying to give me life. And, and, it was when I let go of my expectations for how this whole thing was supposed to work that I actually found God. And it was, salvation was not holding on, but it was letting go. So, you know, Richard Rohr and Joe Stabile, all those guys, mm-hmm. what they all do say that all great spirituality is about letting go. Yep. That that's the thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think we could say of uh, hope and help to our brothers and sisters who feel like, not like they constructed the wall, but like the church constructed the wall yeah. or the Christians structured the wall and they can't find their way mm. in. Yeah, that's, that's tough because sometimes uh, you have leaders in church who, um, who are afraid of losing who are afraid of admitting that they, they might not have it all figured out. And so what we as church leaders do sometimes is perpetuate our own dysfunction in a, a macro sense. And so everyone else is receiving our dysfunction in their own, in their own experience. It, it's like uh, Roar's line that if you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. And so when you have leaders who are anxious presence, this is uh, Erwin Freeman's metaphor is, uh, or language is the well-differentiated leader. But sometimes when you have overly integrated leaders with the organization that they fear losing control and losing power and losing like their ownership. And so we can't acknowledge our own limitations, our own finitude. And so we, we transmit our pain to everyone else. And when that happens, um, I think that's why you have these, these niche pocket communities on the internet of people who are like, you know, from, from my world, from my side, the, the evangelicals, these like post-evangelicals who love... Like the, the liturgist pod, podcast, you guys heard that stuff, uh, Science Mike and, and Gunger stuff, uh, and the Gin Hat Makers and the Rob Bells and these people who are speaking to evangelicals who are like, this, this isn't working for me anymore, and so let's, let, let's get out of it. And so you have these communities that form around these prophets who are trying to say, there's another way out here that we can do this. Um, 
And so I'm grateful for the way that technology affords us community because often, uh, even with my podcast, what I've found is that you have, you have people who just want to have someone else who's expressing what you're, you're feeling and you need to have someone to kind of validate your experience. And so luckily there's chances for us to experience that um, beyond kind of the, the own four walls of the churches that we inhabit. Um, like uh, the direct question was like, what do you do if you find yourself stuck in those expectations? Um, I, I think the grace is to, to realize that, that God is present even in those, that you know, even if uh, maybe you don't get the permission or the freedom that you want, that, that the God who ultimately is the one who gives freedom is still there even if the church is trying to squelch that. So um, this is all about uh, not accepting everything as it was handed to you. Mm-hmm. Do you think that... Um, Maybe once you, once all of your neat little answers don't work anymore. I don't mean to say that in a, in that way. I'm going to reframe that. That's fair. Like I get what you're saying, though. Yeah, but I, I don't. I, I, it doesn't sound respectful to me, and I want it to. So, when the answers that we grew up with, that we were taught, and that we heard over and over, no longer fit. Do you think? If others who read your book and kind of tag on to some of the courage that you had in asking such hard questions, do you think that maybe that's what causes people on the church side to take down some of the bricks out of the wall? Yeah. And if you haven't asked the questions yet for yourself, then it's very threatening when somebody else asks them. Yeah. Churches ultimately, especially like... in our polity from, from my side is my tradition is non-denominational in the true sense of the word that there's, there's independent authority for every church by the local leaders of it. And so this is especially present in, in my setting. But when you have healthy leaders who are doing the work, who are uh, aware of God's work in their life and their learning and being stretched, the churches re- receive that blessing. When, when those leaders are doing the, the work. And so I, I love the elders that I get to work with now because I see these as, as people who uh, are people of spiritual depth, of people who are willing to listen and to learn and to, and to have conversations that some might not want to have. And I, I think the churches receive that blessing uh, when you have leaders who do that. And I think the best ones are those who can, who can appreciate what what gets you started because often in faith what gets you started isn't going to be what sustains you and keeps you going but there's a sort of like hubris that looks down upon someone who says oh well you know you're just doing your quiet time and that's that's christianity for you and i've transcended because now i can i can quote richard Rohr or i've read nt Wright or you know fill in the blank or because i know my enneagram number uh, i'm so much more mature than you but i think healthy spirituality is able to transcend and include that this is, uh, Rohr talks about that. I think it comes from a guy named Weber first. But the idea that like every part of your journey has a place. And just because you started here doesn't mean once you move over here that you need to look at, back at that and go, oh, y'all are idiots because that's where I was five years or 10 years or 20 years ago. But it, it's, all part of, it's all part of the process. And when you have healthy leaders who are doing that as well, I think that's when you have the healthy places where where healthy spiritual formation is fostered. All right. So now I'm going to I'm going to come after you a little bit on for some feelings. 
So those of you uh, who are listening and those who are with us in the room, do you hear all that head stuff? It's like he's super smart and there's head. Super funny. Super funny. Is that what you said? I thought you were, I was just helping you. I thought you. Yeah, I don't really need, I got this. Okay. So think about, you remember that thing I said earlier about how they cover with humor? Like we just have example number two and we're 15 minutes in. But the, the thing that I want you to be mindful of in terms of the Enneagram is that this is all head stuff. And the problem with it, and it's mostly great, but the problem with it is it's a response to feeling questions. And when in Enneagram world you only respond to feelings with thinking, then you transfer your feelings about the event to your feelings about what you think about the event. So I think it's important for five, sixes, and sevens in their thinking dominant space to stay connected to the story that caused them to go on that search. And it's almost always deep feelings. Now, nobody has ever asked me to tell the opening story for one of my books, Um, but I, I wonder if you would talk about your feelings that are connected to the story from childhood that you remembered as the father of a five-year-old. So when I was five, I lived uh, outside of Philadelphia, and um, we had this real cool property that we we lived on that um, had this uh, beautiful creek down at the bottom of the hill behind us, and so we had this like heavily forested like hill between our house and the creek. And so one day we're going down to play at the creek, me and, and two friends. And so I'm like five or so at the time. And the girls who I'm going down with are similar age. And the, the only problem between our house and the creek is that there's this road, this 45-mile-an-hour road that has this um, low visibility because of the uh, circuitous road that's kind of like weaving around all the trees and the hills and all that stuff. And so we, we go down to cross and... The older sister goes first, and she crosses, and then the middle sister crosses the street, and she gets halfway across the street, and this Ford Bronco comes around the corner, and uh, there was a nurse driving the Bronco that had no chance to see this girl, and so she was hit by this uh, Ford Bronco, and uh, her body ended up parking 30, 40 feet away from where she started, and... um, my dad, in, since then, has told me when he came down, he couldn't tell who it was. That was it was just um, like this macabre, gruesome scene. Um, but there were no adults there. There's no cell phones, and so I'm five. This happens. It's my house, and so I. My two memories are what happens next is I, I run up the hill, and I go to our our living room, and we had this phone on the wall, and I call nine one one from there. And the second memory is that we have all these first responder vehicles who are now parking in our front yard um, in the aftermath of the event. And so I'm five and this happens, and it's, it's tragedy. The, the, the young girl did survive, but she's never been the same uh, physically, mentally. Um, and 
I didn't think much of the situation like as I was growing up. Um, okay, can I interrupt for a second? Mm -hmm. So that's really important because sevens reframe everything in real time. So things that happen at that age that you would think you would think about all the time that you're growing up, you wouldn't if you're a seven. And you wouldn't remember it the way other people who were there remember it. So I'm keep going, then I got some more to say, of course. Um, my follow-up question, how would other people remember that? Well, I would have thought about it constantly. Like I, as a two, that would have been part of the fabric of my life. It would have been one of the stories that I told. It would have had everything to do with me feeling helpless and like I couldn't do anything to make it better. See, yeah, I've, I've interpreted that as, so my dad's a psychologist and he was very deliberate of, okay, you did the right thing. This wasn't your fault. You know, everything that happened, um, you know, that's terrible, but this isn't your responsibility. You did the right thing. We appreciate it. And so my self-talk about this is that, you know, my parents did the best they could to shield me from unnecessary trauma from that trauma. Right. And what I would say is because of the way your seven self mm -hmm. operates, it's much easier to shield you from trauma gotcha. than it is me for a time. Yeah. But then for all sevens, it, it comes back, which is why I'm so fascinated with what you're about to talk about. Uh, so what she wants me to talk about, I guess, is the... What we're going to have to do. Huh? What we're going to have to do. Yeah, what we're going to have to do. So I, I tell this in the book the, um, that I never really thought about that until... So I have three daughters, uh, 10, 7, and 4, and when, when I think the oldest was 5 or so, um, I, I don't know what it was, I just, like the story just came back because it was my 5-year-old, and I could disassociate from that experience until somehow I was forced to engage with it when I had my own daughter who was 5. And this is working great for what I want to teach by the way. Good. I'm glad that this could help you. Yeah. It's not helping me. Yeah, it is. It's helping both of us. Mm -hmm. I so, appreciate that moment of levity because I was about to be serious for a second. So I appreciate you being a good friend. Yeah. Thank you. I got you. I got your back. Yeah. So um, you, you can do all kinds of tricks, mental tricks, if you're a five, six, or a seven. And you can take anything and move it to your head, and you can move it there really fast. But it doesn't replace the feeling, it postpones it. And the feeling comes back. And it usually comes not at your bidding, and I think it comes back because God's faithful. But out of all those numbers, sevens are the only number on the Enneagram. Sevens and twos have a, a different experience than every other number on the Enneagram in that, for me as a two, if you count wings and stress and security, I never organically or intuitively have access. I'm not connected by a line to anything having to do with thinking. Let's not make a joke about that right now. <laughs> and the same is true for sevens, except it's feeling. So feelings are far, far far away, but they're always there. And 
it's my experience after these years of listening to Enneagram stories over and over and over, is that transformative work for sevens comes when you can't overcome the feelings with thinking. Hmm. Can I ask one follow-up question before we engage exactly with that? Uh, yeah, see, are you watching the little switch here? No, I'm going to come back to that, but I was going to interrupt you. You said that the feelings come back because God is faithful. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of like a poetic tongue-in-cheek statement, or what is the... Explain that to me more. If, as a seven, you were able to do all of life, having a feeling, reframing it immediately, and moving on, then there are parts of yourself that you would never experience, and there are parts that Lindsay and the girls would never experience. And in God's faithfulness, it's all always there, and it's offered to us over and over, I believe, until we grab the pieces that we need. Mm. So my problem is the exact opposite from yours, because I just feel and feel and feel and then do something about what I feel and then have feelings about what I did, but I don't think. Hmm. see how that works and so because there's a a holistic part of us Mm -hmm. I believe the world's put together in a way where what we need to deal with is kind of like a I think God kind of puts it on a merry-go-round and it just comes around and comes around and comes around until you finally just grab it yeah my mom tells a story about when she first started teaching about sevens and Roar told her when they start talking each one is going to have some story that you've never heard that is, is kind of tragic. And so she went with these sevens in that she had in the room and each one, I won't do it as well. It's recorded somewhere, but one guy is a grown man who's a police officer now. And his dad was abusive to his mom. And he said, I'm like, and he never told anybody that. And that's why I became a cop because no one's ever going to do this to somebody I love. And somebody else, their parents were teachers and alcoholics. So everything was great except for the holidays and the summers Mm -hmm. because that's when they went on their benders. But everything else was great. And everything was reframed in the moment for them as kids. But then those feelings came up for them in adulthood and they applied it to their lives. I think that's where you're going with this. And my story for me was... My uh, biological father lost me at, not lost me, he left me at Hurricane Harbor. And I remember thinking, not a big deal. I'm at Hurricane Harbor. He didn't lose me in a vegetable patch. I mean, yeah. So, but with my kids, they'll never be lost anywhere or never not know where I am. And I think, and I'll let, I don't want to speak for you, but that's what I'm taking from this of God being faithful and it coming back up. I think uh, one of the things that can happen for you with this book in terms of Enneagram wisdom is that you can talk about the gift that you received in not dismissing what keeps coming up. And that you allowed yourself to ask some really hard questions without knowing what the answers were going to be. So Parker Palmer would say those are honest questions. Mm -hmm. Honest questions are when you don't already have an answer in mind, 
that you're trying to get somebody to say mm -hmm. and when you don't know the answer yeah. and that can't be answered with yes or no. And so I think, you know, it's so interesting to be in the room with all these folks because when a seven levity is kind of set down for a minute, you feel the difference in the room. It changes everything because we rely on sevens to maintain the levity. And when they don't, when they start to grow enough that they don't maintain the levity, then we take that from them by saying, Man, what was wrong with you on the podcast? You're usually kind of fun and lighthearted and it got all heavy. And, and I, I, I think you have wisdom that we're never going to, you and all sevens, have wisdom that we're never going to hear if we keep asking you for levity, if we keep asking you for humor, if we keep asking you to reframe things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Yes. Katie, you're going to have to just... Woman up. There you go. You're doing great. Okay. <laughs> Katie said that the seven she knows are uh, sarcastic. They're like, they're edgy with their humor. It's not so much nice humor. It's like cutting and. Yeah, I, I, the, my experience with sevens is in a quick, sharp, edgy humor and very sarcastic. Instead of like telling like a quick little joke that, you know, my humor is definitely not a seven humor. So I'm just wondering, uh -huh. is that all sevens or is that just the two few sevens that I know? You go first and I'll follow. Okay, you'll correct me. No, I'll follow. <laughs> I'll think, add on. I think every number is like, so let's say sevens are blues. Like if seven was a color, let's, let's call it blue. And there's some dark blue, there's some aqua blue, there's some light blue, you know, I don't know, more blue variations. But there's a whole different, you can go to like a, a paint store and there's like a thousand different blues. They're all blue, but they all present it a little bit different. I, I mean, you might've just run into a few bad apples, but I think sevens are typically <laughs> going to be like quick, like that's, sevens are, I can't say, oh, we're the smartest people. Like, no, that's what I'm saying. The, Typically, come on, fill me in here. I don't want to be I like. I think there's, there's a there's a level of one maturity or immaturity that comes out in the humor of seven that might not come out in the humor of other numbers, and then also, man, just where you're at that day. I I can think back, and I'm a little bit younger. Thank you for mentioning that. So, I appreciate that. Then Suzanne, I'm a little bit younger than Suzanne. Good refrain. As are most folks in the room. And I look back on some of the things that I've said, and, and I'm like, man, that was hilarious in the moment. And that, that wasn't very funny at all. And because I'm feeling repressed, I'll never apologize, and we <laughs> won't have that conversation. Yeah. And, and I'll try not to do it next time, and I probably will. <laughs> You're better. Truth be told, my humor, like it gets meaner the tighter I get. In my head, it's just as funny and nice, but usually people are like, aren't you a preacher? Like, that's usually what I get to later. Um, but I A bigger answer is that sevens move to five when they're secure. And so your friends who are sevens move to five. They take on five energy when they're with you, and fives are sarcastic and cynical more than any other number. And brief. 
So what happens is you mix the humor of uh, seven at some maturity level, and then you add that they're feeling secure, so they also have five energy, and they just uh, take a shortcut. It's a shortcut to humor when they feel secure. One of the things I've noticed about my humor as I get older is that I shortcut less, and the jokes typically work better. When I was younger, I would still have things in my head that were just as funny, but other people didn't think so. Yeah. Uh, and I found that the, I would jump to the punchline way too fast, and it never went as well. One of the things we've learned with Joel is that I, I think we laughed at a lot of stuff when he was growing up that wasn't funny because he's so happy with his own stuff. <laughs> and he thinks it's so funny that we just go with it. It's like we were laughing kind of with him, but not at the joke. <laughs> I, I really laugh at jokes that I write while I'm in my office writing them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I really like, that's really funny. That's just really good. Yeah, that's the seven. So I want to talk. A, yeah, it does. Okay. All right, I want to I talk a little more about it from an Enneagram perspective to say that this is a perfect place to talk about the fact that you don't know necessarily go to the low side of a stress number and the high side of a security number. There's just as good a chance if you don't do your work that when you're feeling secure, you get a little too secure, and you relax a little bit, and then you get sarcastic and cynical with five energy. So do you, in your, as a seven, have you sought a place in your life where you can be free from the expectation of the world for you to be sort of the energy in the room, like a place where you can not have to do that? Uh, I... So I'm fortunate enough that I can take a day off during the week. And so Fridays, I typically don't see anyone. Like, I just try to be completely, like, do my own thing. Uh, and that might be the answer to that question. Like, I, I try to be pretty consistent about not scheduling any appointments or seeing anyone. And, like, I, I find that to be deeply uh, essential for my own spiritual health. And if I don't have to see anyone, then I don't feel like I have to carry any rooms or carrying conversations. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit the enneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today. <laughs>